0: It is that wonderful time of the year where we're reminded that one has come to the close, another one's about to begin, and it's the same old shit. <laughs> but at being the gamer that I am, it's time to count down the top five video games of the year, specifically for 2022. And honestly, there was some good stuff released this year, as as far as gaming is concerned. It wasn't necessarily dry. It wasn't, but at the same time. It wasn't like the banger year that, say, 2018. It came close, but it wasn't on the level of 2018. Because 2018, goddamn, and even 2020, I would say. 2018 and 2020, within the past five years or so, are probably the two years to me that stand out. In between, there were some definite highlights, but also some droughts. I would argue that 2021 was probably one of the driest um years in gaming as far as, there was probably like one or two releases that were huge, but overall, I mean, can it be any drier than to have It Takes Two be the game of the year? Not saying that it wasn't game of the year level, but just think, you know, think about It Takes Two and then think about the 2018 God of War or Breath of the Wild, regardless of how you feel about the game. You know, those are temple games that you look at the, you hear the games and you go, or the names rather, and you go, yes, those are game of the years. And so 2022, I would say, has some juggernauts in there that were are worthy of that praise. And I want to go ahead and just break down what I thought were my personal favorites out of the year, along with some honorable mentions. Now, of course, I'm not going to be able to list some what many could regard as their favorite game of 2022 should you be listening to this on your favorite podcast pl- platform of choice or on YouTube as a separate video on the Dark Spider-Cast YouTube channel. Because a couple of things. One, obviously, this is my own personal list. There's going to be some differing, differing opinions, especially when we get to a particular honorable mentioned. But outside of that, there's also the fact that I'm your average Joe. Despite being a content creator, I'm not working for some publishing website or journalistic website. I not, you know nothing from IGN, Kotaku, Polygon, etc. There's no ties to that. So I don't get review codes. I don't get anything like that. Most of the games that are going to be found on this list are actually games that I had to go and either buy out of my own pocket or they came to the mercy of Game Pass and I was able to get access to them in that manner. So those are quite frankly the main main caveats. For now let's start off the list with The number uh, 5 video game of 2022, again, out of my own personal list, it's going to be multiverses. (laughs) I know, again, coming back to those caveats that I mentioned, where it was either had to be paid out of my own pocket, or had to be accessed through Game Pass, or in this particular case, had to be free-to-play, which is multiverses, the platforming, as a lot of people like to call Smash Clone can't really denounce that necessarily because it is borrowing an awful lot of DNA from Smash Brothers. But if you're going to borrow, borrow all the right things from the right places and the right sources, right? And I feel like Multiverses was very self-aware of that. Making sure that what people loved about Smash Brothers, which is the gameplay and how good it feels in hand to play as some of these characters while at the same time showing the love for said characters. I got that... In full spades, as I played the game, and I just kept falling in love with it, in love with it it's so much so that in between games, where I wanted to play something, but I didn't want to start something that was narrative, narratively driven. You know, it wasn't like a big, expansive single-player open-world campaign bullshit where I was like, I'm gonna have to be invested and I have to be wired in and not be listening to any podcasts or watching any videos or listening to any videos while I was just playing. But if I wanted to resort to something that was like that, but also felt kind of fresh and new at the same time, putting a smile on my face, it really was multiverses. Granted, there were some jagged edges towards the beginning with some imbalancing on some characters where some were more OP than others. Iron Giant, I'm looking at you. But overall, like I said, the love and care and attention to detail... I can honestly not knock Y1 Fighting Game of the Year at this year's Game Awards. I know that, you know, Game Awards, whether it be Jeff Keighley's Game Awards or any of these like best of lists that some of these websites put out there, are not necessarily gospel. You know, you really have to take an awful lot of them with a grain of salt. And depending on who you affiliate yourself with or line yourself up with, as far as opinions uh, are concerned, it really depends on you. But there's some things that you look at and go, yeah, I can kind of gauge it in that manner. And to me, the Game Awards giving the Fighting Game Award year, to, uh, the award to Multiverses this year, I can see that. And I know that it wasn't necessarily the starkest of competitions as far as game, you know, video games or fighting games were concerned. I know that that's probably waiting for us in 2023 with big, like I said, 10 pulled juggernauts such as Street Fighter VI and Tekken VIII. But this year, I, w- I feel like Multiverse is kind of had it in the bag, and the amount of time that I poured into this game, and the actual genuine fun that I had with it. Like I said, there were so many avenues that you you can sure you can kind of scrutinize the microtransactions, the cosmetic stuff, the battle pass. But as far as what the developers were able to put behind this game, it felt like a game that if I was to think about DC and Warner Brothers characters and melding them together into a platform fighter, this would arguably be it. This is what would be concocted in my brain. And it's good to see that there was that level of. Uh, relatability behind what the developers were thinking and what they were actually able to put out. And considering that it was a free-to-play game and it was as polished as it is, despite, like I said, the jagged edges, and the jagged edges weren't even an awful lot of technical ones. I, I would say it was very easy to find a match. There was hardly any problems with that, hardly any glitches, lagginess. Ever so often there was that laggy match, but it would really be quite literally with someone o- across the world, uh, you know, overseas. Outside of that, though, I... I almost never really got booted out of a match, and the only problems that we had were very FGC-centric stuff. You know what I mean? Like, first-world fighting game community problems as far as a character, like I mentioned before, being overpowered or not having the proper way to juggle a character up in the air and balance out the fighting moves, the iframes. So to speak, you know, it was all those things, you know, things that next million dude would just break down in like 30 minute chunks of of video content. But outside of that, it was just a very fluid experience and one that coming from a free to play game is very commendable. And I would say that that's a very defining, a very defensive case for it to be my number five. Now, my number four game is definitely going to need a defensive case because It's the style of game that often gets criticized when it's published by a developer like Ubisoft. And it's criticized, in fact, it's become a meme like, oh, it's a Ubisoft game because of all the busy work that's laid out over the open world. But because it's coming from a first party studio from Sony, specifically Guerrilla Games. And it's also coming out on another year where you had an even bigger game, a bigger open world game taking an awful lot of the acclaim and glory kind of like the predecessor did in 2017 with Breath of the Wild. You can probably put all the clues together and realize what my number four game is. It's Horizon Forbidden West Horizon 2 because it's another game that I just felt really comfortable in. Yes, it has an awful lot of the checkboxing that gets criticized these days with an awful lot of games that makes the argument for a game like Elden Ring to not hold your hand or other games that take chances and being a bit more exploratory or being a bit more obtuse as far as letting the player take control as opposed to, you know, this marker saying, you know, pick up this, pick up that. But I guess the defensive case I can make for Horizon 2 Forbidden West is that it's able to take what really worked in the first Horizon game and kind of amplified specifically on the visuals. It's one of the prettier games to be released this year, the art directions through the roof, the different creature, robotic creature designs, as well as the different environments that we go to that definitely juxtapose those of the original game is something that, to me, made the 40 to 45 hours I put into the game kind of a breeze. That is another litmus test. Just like I recently criticized Avatar The Way of Water, the, 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 the fact that it was a three-hour movie, and I told myself, and I often tell people that when it comes to something that's very long, whether it be a three-hour movie or a very lengthy gaming experience, like an open-world campaign says this, if you can feel the time, feel the hours, and feel the running time, There was probably something that needed to be cut or something that needed to be streamlined and tightened up. I said that about Avatar The Way of Water. Can't exactly say that for Horizon Forbidden West. This was a game that even though I noticed that I was taking, I think, about two to two and a half weeks and, again, cumulatively about 40 to 45 hours to beat, I never thought of myself, man, this game needs to end, or this game you know, needs to wrap up, or how long have I been playing this, or how much more do I have left? You know, I never said those phrases like, how long more do I have to play in this game? No, I just woke up a morning, I realized I didn't really have anything to do as far as work, as far as responsibilities, uh, prior engagements, I didn't have to hang out with anybody, I didn't have to edit a video, a video had just been published. I was like, all right, let me pick up uh, Horizon and uh, play it back in February. And I just lost myself for about two and a half to three hours. My stomach woke me up and said, hey, it's time to eat. Okay, let's go eat. And I used that as my signal to take a break, focus on whatever it is I needed to do, and then later on that evening, jump back in. I was like, that that was just my schedule. And I never thought of myself as a – it never felt like a cumbersome chore to go through this environment, to go through this world, and do the things that needed to be done. Can I understand someone for criticizing it being very chetboxy and feeding into the problem of having all these, you know, places on the map that need to be unlocked, tonics which serve as these worlds kind of towers that you need to unlock so you can open up more of the map and see more of the side activities? Yes, you know, I can see that. I can totally, I can't make an argument for that. I I can't look at someone that says that and say, you're wrong, or you need to look at it from this perspective. No, if they've already played a handful of games that, that, that 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 was a factor that didn't vibe with them necessarily, then I completely understand. To me, though, it was doing enough right for me to be able to look past that and engage me in the mystery as to why things are going haywire on this world. One objective Criticism that I will, however, hit the game and tell them, hey, this is definitely something that does not need to persevere going into a third potential game, should there be one, considering that we are getting DLC, which is cool to see that we're getting DLC set in Hollywood out of all places, so that's going to hit quite literally close to home. Uh, I don't live in Hollywood, but I am in the Southern California area, so it's kind of like a more relatable place for me. But should there be a third game, we definitely need some progression in character development for Aloy herself. I understand how sh- the way that she was in the first game considering the things that she was going through, but the one thing that I would wholeheartedly agree with a lot of critics out there when through the reviews that I was watching after I had beat the game and put mine out there was that Aloy herself could be seen as a little just generic or she's often she often sounds kind of pissed off at some things that she shouldn't be at but was, what was able to balance her out and ha- give her these little moments of reprieve or even some humoristic, you know, undertones to be like, oh, you know, like, you know, bre- break her away from her u- usual stoicism. That's, that's the word stoic, stoicness, stoicism. Was well, some of the side quests. And that's another thing that this game had me gushing over was that it had side quests that sure, a couple times would be a little fetch questy, but for every fetch questy, side quest, side mission, there would be like two or three that actually had some kind of narrative hook of a character that had gone missing or this person that needed rescuing or this person that was trying to achieve a goal for a loved one that had passed. Something like that. I can't remember. You know, admittedly, there's some that I can't remember specifically, but I remember there were were some where I'm like, yeah, I kind of have to do this before we do the main story. And the way that things lead up there towards the end, sure, the final boss fight or the final... End fight could have been a little bit more epic, but outside of that, yeah, this was overall, like I said, a very brisk 45-hour experience, and that to me feels like a worthwhile game in my top five. Now, I'm personally excited to talk about number three, primarily because I feel like not too many other people... Talked about it. It might have come out a little too early. I do remember it came out, I think, in February, and there was a little bit of a confusion mishap because of the way that the Deluxe Edition came out a little earlier, so people were a little rough on the release date, and I I think everybody was talking about it that week, and then it just kind of dropped, especially because, again, another game kind of took a little bit of that limelight, but, man, a lot of people need to be much more flexible. They need to be more like water. Be like water. And you can kind of sense the martial arts motif here. It is Sifu at number three. Oh, man. This, this game put a smile on my face and adrenaline into my blood in a way that I just did not think it could do. And it's it, it, here's a good way to tell you guys how much I love this game. I love it so much that I think... I'm trying to remember, did I buy it digitally and then rebuy it? Or no, no, no. I, I bought, I took a blind buy, took a gamble on buying it as the the Vengeance edition, which is ten dollars more expensive, but it's the physical version that comes with like the steel book and all these different things. And so I pulled the trigger on it and I was just so glad that I did. It was like an immediate I immediately fell in love with it because the way that it makes combat feel is it's it's that old adage where it's simple to learn but difficult to master, incredibly difficult to master. And it has this system in play that's a little difficult as well to articulate or to explain. But once you get into the rhythm, um, rhythm of it, you kind of get the gist of it where every time you die, you age. Now, when you start aging, you only age by like a year or two. But the more you die, the faster you age. And once you hit like age 75, 80, when they get pretty much when you hit 80. Is when the game says, "Yeah, game over." We're starting you from the beginning, and it's structured as a Roguelike, I believe, where if you die, you have to start from pretty much the very beginning, unless you beat the boss of the level. Then it gives you the option. Without going into too much spoilery territory, it gives you the option to be able to jump to different levels. However, the wrinkle is that when you jump to that level, you'll start it at the age that at the best age you beat it at. So if by some chance you beat a boss, you finally were able to beat a boss, like boss number three, but you were already in your sixties. The next level can be you can jump directly to the next level instead of starting from the beginning if you die. But you're gonna start at at age sixty unless you go back to boss three or level three and you try to get a better age when you wrap that up. So it kind of encourages repetition. In a way that never feel, because of the way that you're able to either unlock different skill sets, or you're able to uh, keep certain ones while at the same time disregarding others, and then just, just like real martial arts, just learn how to time things correctly in a very fluid way that just feels natural to the body. It keeps things from feeling fresh. I understand if maybe some people here or there will see the same hallways, same enemies over and over, and that's why whenever that would happen to me. I would treat it as those games where I'm not going to say it's a grind fest because you're technically not grinding for loot or anything like that. But I would just treat it as training, as legitimate training, like when you're going to the gym and you're jogging or you're lifting certain weights or whatever. And you put on music, you know, you put on something else to just keep you uh, on your toes as far as freshness, as far as something to just kind of keep you going and motivated that way. And there's a bombing soundtrack here in Sifu. But ever so often, you know, I would hear the same track, and I would then take off the headset off the game and then put it into my laptop to then listen to a podcast or whatever. While at the same time, training my hand-eye coordination to make sure that I get my skills down so that when I got to that third boss and I beat it, I was no longer beating it at age 60. I was now at 40, so going into boss 4 or level 4, I was like, you know what, I got this. And the bosses, there's there's one in particular that is incredibly cheap. I will give it that. But outside of the cheap one, they're very again, they're very focused on getting patterns down right. They're very memorable. Got great music, great villains, a lot of great camera work and cinematography and blocking that is very reminiscent of Kurosawa films without being overly Kurosawa. Because there was one other game that came out this year that was a definitive homage to Kurosawa, but a little too much to where sometimes the camera work kind of got in the way of the gameplay and I was kind of like, well, what was the point of making it into a game? You might as well have made it into like a visual uh, a, a, a visual novel, an interactive novel or something like that. I'm, obviously, I'm talking about Trek to Yomi. But outside of that, it's treated in a very... Like a fusion between a Bruce Lee movie and a Kurosawa film with the cinematography. And the way that everything is just kind of blocked and put together. While at the same time, the gameplay itself being very addictive. Like it has that one more time kind of functionality to it. And like I said, outside of the uh, cheap boss with the staff. It's the second boss that I looked at and said, yeah, fuck you. As soon as I get my best... Age beaten out of you when I am able to finally look to myself and go, okay, I can move on. I'm never replaying you. I'm replaying the others to gain enough experience points to unlock certain trinkets and and things that I'm able to take with me. Because when you unlock a skill, you can unlock it during your run. But if you get killed, you lose it. However, and that to me, that always is one of the detractors for me for roguelite or roguelike, whatever you want to call it. But what made me go, oh wait, hold on, is that if you are able to unlock it a certain amount of times through your run, unlocking it one final, I want to say like fifth or sixth time, you can keep it throughout as many, it's permanent. It becomes permanent through your runs, and I'm like, so that encourages the repetition. It gets a little grindy, but at the same time, I can actually keep this to not make it grindy later. I like that. That was different from other roguelikes. And I'm like, let me let me try this. And that's what fed into the addictive nature where it's that, it's that style of game that on paper, if you were to go from beginning to end, you could beat it in like two and a half to three hours. But of course, that's only if you're a fucking robot. For me, it took me about 20, 20 hours, 20 to maybe 25. But admittedly, I want to say half of those hours were voluntary. Where me just trying to master my skill, unlock more skills and keep them permanent And just trying to squeeze as much juice out of this very fruitful game. And again, outside of that cheap boss or what admittedly is a bit of a cookie cutter storyline. Your typical vengeance stuff that you find in an awful lot of these martial arts movies or properties. Nothing to really write home about. But it's using it as a template to deliver on great memorable gameplay. That has me looking forward to what the developers have up next. Usually the last two games in my top five are games that are able to, to then stir a little bit more emotion out of me. Along with great gameplay, art direction, and storytelling. So taking the silver medal is the game that was able to second in second place move me to an emotional level that had me go. God damn that is fucked up. And that is A Plague Tale Requiem. Admittingly, I do prefer the the, the much more streamliningness of the first one. And that's an awful running theme that I've been finding in an awful lot of sequels these days. Specifically when we get later down the list here. But I noticed that it does have that slight little crux of going a little bigger. Having bigger ambitions as far as the structure of the open world. Or the the, the, the world's the little environment so you get to explore. Because it's one of those pseudo linear games where the first game was very much linear but this one for the most part it's linear but there's a couple of areas here and there that it kind of opens up just a little bit a a a la uncharted 4 where it's mostly linear but there's a little pockets here and there that are a bit open like the jeep section from uncharted 4 this kind of has that just not to that extreme because it is still dealing with a double-a studio that doesn't have necessarily the money that someone like naughty dog is able to fork over for some expansive uh, development on that those environments so it's not going to be as open or as huge but it kind of structures itself the same way I personally prefer the way that the first game structured its, its, its way it, the way it was able to tell its story but still what A Plague Tale Requiem was able to do as a sequel ...was what I love for sequels to take more chances on, both in gaming and in movies, which is not just to go a little bigger and a little bit more ambitious and expensive in terms of scope and detail, which this game definitely does As far from a presentation standpoint, like, it, it looks beautiful and i was also pretty blessed pretty uh, thankful that it was able to run a little smoother than some other people were able to have on their experiences because i played it on series x and it looks like it, through game pass and it looks like that's probably the most optimal way to play this kind of game because a lot of people were having problems on both pc and and ps5 so i was thankful enough to not have too many glitches or things like that i think one time the game did freeze but then it unfroze after like 5 seconds and uh, there was one other segment that involved a puzzle that a second ca- secondary character needed to participate in. And that second character disappeared. And I had to restart from the last checkpoint, which involved killing a couple of dudes again. So, yeah, a couple of frustrations, technical frustrations here and there. But beyond that, what I was trying to get to before I segued my, or I kind of derailed myself, was that the thing that I love for sequels to do more, just like Plague Tale Requiem was able to do, was to progress the characters forward. To actually give him a story or at least an anchor point that Amicia and Hugo here are naturally able to follow after the ending of the last game. So Hugo has the macula in him and he's able to connect to these rats in a very specific, almost supernatural kind of way amongst the backdrop of, what is it, like 13th century, 14th century France, you know, when the plague actually hit. Uh, however, they are trying to reach a place where they can take care of this macula once and for all. But others out, out there feel like Hugo having the smacula could be a gift, could be a curse. They want it for themselves. They want it to be clinched. You know, Different things that I'm going to try to keep as vague as possible here for spoilers. But it, it's a very natural progression for our characters that takes them in places that are very, very dark. Specifically Amicia. Who, by the way, you know, the actress, I can't remember her name. Uh, I'm sorry. I feel terrible not remembering her name. But when I beat the game, I told myself, yeah, she needs to be nominated for Best Performance. And I was so glad uh, that she was up in the running if it wasn't for another actor who definitely was probably going to take it. But it's good to see that if it wasn't for him, she might have had a shot because that's how riveting her performance is. You can hear it in her voice and in her inflections, and probably even in her mocap stuff. I don't know if she just did voice and didn't do mocap, or if she did do mocap. You can pick it up from the little nuances that she's going through turmoil. turmoil. She's going through some shit. And same thing can go for the actors behind the other uh, characters, such as uh, Hugo and uh, Lucas, and a couple of other characters, one in particular that tags along, although he was kind of, you know conflicted as far as how I felt about him because of how switcheroo he was but outside of that that's where I wanted the story to progress for leading up to a climax that I looked at and said god damn and I it was it was a game where when I beat the climax got to the epilogue and credits were rolling I was just kind of sitting there like damn that happened you know wasn't necessarily gonna lose sleep but I was just like that's the shit that happened and with again without avoid with avoiding spoilers, where can we go from here really in the series? Can there be a DLC? Can there be a spin off? Can there be a, a legitimate third game? Maybe not. Maybe, um, a Sobo, I think, is the developer, and uh, um, Focus, who's the publisher, maybe they can go in a different direction, brand new IP, and whatever it is. I'm definitely looking forward to it because if this is what they were able to capable of doing with the Plague Tale series, leading to this climax, then. I'm all for it. For now, though, what I was left with here, from a storytelling perspective, from a gameplay perspective, gameplay is the same. It's for the most part the same as the first game, except they were able to give you a couple of things here and there that did amplify and encourage you to try different things as a misia, because it's still a very stealth focused game. But it's definitely, to me, a bit of a a bit of a pro, a bit of a a, a you know a, a praise. To the game that me not being a stealth guy, I'm actually down for this game to play it in stealth to avoid as much detection as possible. Yeah, from time to time you can have some of the chests in the environment as well as the tall grass and the the, the way that it appears in the environment come off as a little video gamey. But it definitely fed into my tendencies to want to just play this As it's encouraging me to do, which is stealth. I could technically go in there and go guns blazing and start swinging with my um, sling and and try to beat things uh, head on. But I actually felt encouraged and incentivized to not do so and actually take advantage of the upgrade system. Which was not like, oh, you know, gain XP, gain points, and then allocate those points. No, it was actually an upgrade tree that I haven't seen in either a really long time or possibly even ever. Which was a tree that upgraded the more you used certain features in the game. So if you were stealthier, the stealthier skills were upgraded. If you were more craftable or more aggressive in terms of fighting enemies head-on, then those trees or those branches of the tree would level up quicker. So by the end of the game, you have that more experience or those skills more unlocked. But it really depends on how you play. It's not like... You know, you gain XP from completing missions and then even though you were stealthy, you're gonna put those points towards being, you know, having more health or having more damage output. No, it's not like that. It's not a traditional RPG. And I like that. It felt natural, it felt like it fit for a game of this caliber. And it it was just very uh curious and very different for me to get that experience kind of out of the game, out of the gameplay. And a couple things here and there, like I said, they felt like they just took them and lifted them from the first game, but if it ain't broke, don't fix it, and I love the fact that Amicia is able to get up from certain instances from getting hit in the head instead of being a one-shot kill, Um, so that was a definitive improvement, but again, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, and it looks like that was a very strong step in the right direction. And I'm looking forward to seeing what the devs do next, but the ending of the, the impactful nature of this game definitely left me in a very pensive state, and that's generally what I have reserved for the numbers two spot. So obviously that's going to leave us with the number one spot, but of course I have to do this before we get to that honorable mentions, and I'll try to brisk through them quickly, especially because I have a gargantuan and potentially controversial one here towards the end. So. First Honorable Mention is another Game Pass game, Nobody Saves the World. I thought was actually a really fun romp and a very addictive one, especially with all the different powers that you get to play with, leveling up those powers and going through the different world. And it definitely felt like a game that I probably could have just played on the Switch because of the low, you know, I don't want to say low effort, but it's 2D, it's cartoon, and it's aesthetic, and the story's not all that crazy, but it was definitely... Um, a game that had me hooked with its humor, its quirky design aesthetic, but more so it's those powers that I can switch between, d- take on the different forms, get different power. There's like dozens of different powers that I can kind of allocate and try to improve on as I explore this world in a very top-down 2D classic Zelda sort of uh, approach. But it was a very fun experience that I didn't think to myself I was going to get hooked on, and I was. I played it for like 20-25 hours, beat the game, and it was a a fun experience to get these powers and defeat a bunch of enemies showing up on screen. And yeah, it was definitely an honorable mention that I walked away from going, yeah, I got to mention this by the time I get to my list. Triangle Strategy on the Switch, this was also a similar game that had a very dense lore. That hooked me a bit more than its story. Because the story... It's very political. And I don't mind political driven... You know... Subplots and things going on in games. Especially when they're told in a very comfortable and very nuanced way. At times the... Voice acting as well as the writing for the dialogue of these characters could come off as a little, <laughs> you know, we're we're very high up there, so we have to show off how high up there we are. You know, that kind of j- traditional dubbing you get in Japanese games. But the actual strategy in Triangle Strategy is really what compelled me. That's, I think that's the word that really comes to mind is compelling. I found Triangle Strategy more compelling than I was giving it credit for because I found myself just kind of cozying up to the story, to the lore between these lands and, like I said, the political intrigue and hearing these. It's, all, it's like, I really hope I don't sound like I'm being a little bit uh, trivialistic saying this, but it's almost like baby's first Game of Thrones. Like, I can see Triangle Strategy on the Switch a kid playing or a teenager playing it and then going and then something clicking in their brain saying wow this is very intriguing i wonder what other kind of properties out there are like this and they discover game of thrones and if they can look past the the violence and the sex and the things that kind of go down in that show, they could probably latch onto the political intrigue and the plot kind of thickening as someone betrays who and conspires against this other person and they just get sucked into that. That's probably one of the things that they love about those kind of properties. And going beyond the, the realm of Game of Thrones, they can find other things. So that's one of the alluring uh, elements about Triangle Strategy that really suckered me in. The pixel uh art and the way it's able to play with deep focus whether you're in between cutscenes navigating the world or during some of these isometric uh battles uh, strategic battles and like I said it's really thought provoking as far as where to put your characters and making sure that each one's know have that right amount of uh, the uh, magic points and strength and knowing what plays how and what roles they have in terms of defense versus attack and it actually kind of got me sucked in. I don't know if I'm like a full strategy head now. I don't know if I'm going to like go into the realm of fu- uh, tracking down Final Fantasy tactics or Ogre tactics or others of these ilk. But, you know, it's a definite it's a good gateway drug into that genre. Now, they won't necessarily make my top five, let alone game of the year. But there are a couple of. Indie darlings, I have to give some credit for being kind of unique. Stray is being one of them. Honestly, Stray is the definitive game that comes out almost every year where everybody praises it for being this very abstract and nuanced thing and everybody loves it, and I'm just like... uh, I mean, there's some elements about it that are very unique, such as the fact that you get to play as a cat. But outside of that, the gameplay is just way too simple for me to actually give it any kind of slots. In fact, this is stray out of all the honorable mentions is the one that is definitely an honorable mention because of the uniqueness of playing as a cat and the little nuances where you can kind of tell that the people were in fact cat people. And they took that into account when making the game. And I also have to give some huge uh, accommodations 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 to the art design behind the robots and this environment that you get to navigate from the perspective of the feline, which is the perfect kind of lens to look at this world. But The gameplay, it's just just way too simple. It's almost borderline non-existent for me that I was just like, all right, I'm just pressing forward and X, forward and X. The only areas that I think to myself it gets kind of compelling as far as the gameplay is uh, concerned are very short-lived, which is whenever you have these creatures kind of coming at you and you have to to charge up this uh, UV light to be able to get rid of them. And even those moments are kind of short-lived because sometimes things happen in the story that take away that element, that gameplay uh, usage, or it just doesn't happen, and you just have to kind of like run away, and the game funnels you down a pathway that says, hey, just run, and I'm like, why, why can't I use the UV ray, <laughs> why can't you bring that back, and so all those different things is, it makes Stray that game that I look at and I go, I'll give it some honorable mentions, because of some of the cool little creative things, but even though I said at the beginning that most of my honorable mentions are the games that you would generally find in the 6 through 10 slot, if I was to have made a top 10, Stray would not have even cracked a top 10. It would just be an honorable mention, and it wouldn't have gone a slot either way, even if I was to make a top 10 instead of a top 5, because Stray is that game that comes out, like I said, every year where it's that abstract, very indie thing, and I'm just like, it's too quote-unquote, indie for me. You know, it's like that movie at the Oscars where it gets nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and I'm like, this is super, like, artsy-fartsy. Like, the, the one movie that I always think about is Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. That came out, what was it, like, 2010, 2011, somewhere around there, where it's just so artsy, and I'm just like, nah, man. I I, I watched the movie. I, I You know, it's not even me talking out of my ass. I actually watched that movie, and I was just like... I you know, I want to say I get it, but maybe I don't, but maybe I do. I just don't give a fuck. I just, uh, it's, it it's, it fits that bill. And Stray kind of comes close to that in the gaming department. But I will give it some kudos for, like I said, those little creative nuances. A similar thing for Immortality. I played a game called Immortality, which some would even argue is even a game to begin with because it's about a movie star who made three movies throughout the 60s, 80s, and 90s but they never got released. And so you're trying to figure out the mystery as to why they never got released, what exactly happened to the star, but it's not necessarily a game in the traditional fashion. It's one of those FMV where you have real footage that was shot, like real live-action footage, FMV, and so you're scrubbing through this footage almost like an editor or like using a machine, like those projections machines, trying to figure out clues when you're going through this footage to figure out exactly what happened, and if there's something a bit more... uh, otherworldly going on here. I'm not going to say much more than that. And again, similar to Stray, it has a lot of creative liberties that I think are pretty cool, pretty neat. A lot of commentary that it has to say amongst the movie industry, especially in the Me Too era that we're in right now, that is definitely commendable. Like There's areas where I'm like, yeah, this definitely needs to have more light. And there's so many layers, as I posted in my Twitter post, there's so many layers about immortality to peel away that some I really vibed with and thought to myself, yes, this is very creative, this is a perfect way to use the effective medium of gaming to kind of, like I said, touch upon the commentary about um, sexual abuse and you know misconduct in the movie industry and what has happened since the Weinstein case and all that stuff that definitely needs a light to be shed on it. But then there's other layers that weren't vibing for me where that some of them had to deal with this otherworldly presence that I'm like, okay, I, th- I think I, ha- I I get the gist of what you're trying to do with this otherworldly presence, but it's not really clicking for me. It feels a little too, again, going back to what I mentioned about Stray, a little too abstract, a little too like, whoo, you know, what's going on here? And you're supposed to piece it together in your head. And now I'm like, it's not good enough. Sorry. It just, it just wasn't, you know, but one thing at the end of the day I can really take away from Immortality and give it some credit is that it's a huge conversation starter. For better or for worse, it's definitely a game to really digest and talk about it and discuss um, th- to get the dialogue going. And if that was the objective, then Immortality really hit it. And then a most recent game that I didn't really think I was going to vibe with, but I did, is a game called Norco, another indie game that was also up for Game of the. Uh, at the Game Awards for, I think, narrative. And it. Almost rightfully so, because there's an awful lot of great lore to read through. Now, granted, it's one of those text-based games that's a very point-and-click adventure. And at first, I thought this was going to kind of turn me away, because effectively, you are playing through a novel. But as I kind of absorb the aesthetic, the pixel art, the music, as well as the lore behind this very... Uh, this... uh crazy version of Norco Louisiana in the far future that's been gentrified and just fucked over by both a hurricane and this corporation that has moved in and the steampunk I don't want to say steampunk but more so like the the Blade Runner-esque kind of aesthetic to it it kind of actually sucked me in more than I thought I would and learning about these characters going through their dialogue options and kind of you know verbalizing a, a, a voice or in my head to what they would sound like, or to what they will look like beyond the pixelized visage. I was just like, yeah, this is, I'm actually kind of vibing with this game more than I thought I would. And uh, by the end, I was roped into some of the twists and turns it would take amongst the story. Albeit some things are a little bit obtuse on the technical side. I would definitely admit that I would probably have a much more fun and nuanced time playing this game if I was playing on PC with a cursor, a keyboard, and a mouse because sometimes this game pissed me the hell off trying to play it on controller because sometimes I would select an option through a dialog but for some reason selecting with the 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 trackpad, the D-pad is a bitch, you know, trying to select certain things, and I'm like, no, that's not what I meant. I pressed up, and instead it would go down. It was just very frustrating. I don't know. There was something really weird and wonky going on with the trackpad, and then you could use the sticks to navigate the cursor, but it's just too slow that sometimes I feel like I could be running through some of these things, some of these options as far as dialogue and choices a little quicker and expedite them a bit if I was playing on PC with a mouse and a keyboard. So, Uh, Most of my complaints are more so on the technical side, but outside of that, it's a really cool little indie that if you do have Game Pass, it's up on Game Pass, I definitely recommend. And then my last honorable mention is for a very small game that some of you may or may not have heard of called Elden Ring. (laughs) No, I'm not bullshitting. That's my last honorable mention is, in fact, for one of the Titans of 2022 that did not crack my top five. But honestly... Right now, I can honestly say Elden Ring would probably be my like either number 6 or number 7. If I was to have, like I said, pushed it to the top 10, it would be Elden Ring. And the only reason why it's not, it either didn't crack the top 5, or it's not being talked about by me more, is because I didn't really play it that much. This is Elden Ring we're talking about, and I only managed to crack about 7 hours into the game. It's gargantuan as far as the open world, what you get to do. But the reason for why it gets an honorable mention is because it's definitely a Souls game that is speaking to me in that way that it spoke to an awful lot of people that still didn't gravitate towards an awful lot of Souls games. Which is the fact that it's not very linear. That if you are having a problem with a boss or a group of enemies and you're getting your ass kicked, go someplace else. And then as the more you learn, the more you strategize. And this is probably the first game where I felt satisfied and never cheated by looking up a starter guide. Like, I actually looked up some videos to how to get started, but they weren't like direct walkthroughs. They were more like advice pieces on YouTube. And doing the back and forth of actually playing through those opening seven hours and then listening to people say, hey, if you're this type of player or this type of, uh, you know, Souls player, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and you never played a Souls game before. This is what we recommend doing. And I was kind of tailoring that experience to something that I felt I felt a bit more personal for me in those opening seven hours. And I was really getting along with it. At first, I was intimidated, much like other people were. But as, as soon as I started to talk to more NPCs in the environment, learning about how certain... Uh, 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 patterns some enemies would take when swinging. I was like, okay, I think I'm getting the gist of it. Right when I was getting the 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 ball rolling and actually getting infatuated with this game, I figured out a problem that I was going to have, and I knew I needed to nip in the bud before it got worse. I I looked at this problem and said, yep, this is not gonna work, and that is that this is definitely definitively a game. That you cannot game share with anybody. If you're serious about playing Elden Ring, do not game share it. (laughs) Which is unfortunately what I was doing with my instance through those 7 hours of playing the game. The only reason why I had the game was because I game shared it with my buddy Alan from uh, work. And so, he let me game share by logging in with his credentials, downloading the game onto my console, signing into his account, and signing into mine. And I was playing, and thankfully, I was not doing anything terribly important. I wasn't, like, in the middle of a boss or taking on a group of enemies that were whooping my ass before, but then after grinding some, uh, uh, you know, runes and Allocating the runes so I could level up and get stronger, and being able to win the uh, wield the twin blade. Look at me! I'm even remembering some of the names of the weapons and some of the th- you know terminology within the game. That's how you know that I was actually starting to get into the game. I get kicked out because my friend signed in on his Xbox at his house to play Modern Warfare Two, and. If this was any other game, especially if, if it was a game that was meant to be a shorter experience like Modern Warfare 2's campaign or it's just something else entirely, I probably would have been okay. Been like, okay, I'll just come back tomorrow. But this is Elden Ring we're talking about. A game that doesn't necessarily have the most fondest autosave system. It has autosave, but it doesn't. it's tailored in a way where it's supposed to give you the sense of dread that if you don't go into a boss fight or any fight, any environment that you're not ready for fully prepared, you're going to regret it because it's not going to just save right before that boss. And of course, if you die, you're going to lose those runes. It's going to automatically save after you lose the runes. You're going to have to go and get them back. And that's kind of what causes the whole risk and reward factor that people love the Souls games so much for. This is not going to work for this system in play of game sharing because what if... I do get to that point where I'm in the middle of a huge boss fight that I've been having the toughest time with. They got like a sliver of health left, and then my buddy signs in and kicks me out. No. No. I I appreciated the gesture of him letting me game share the game. I'm glad that I was able to get seven hours into it to finally find out for myself that this is going to be a game for me. And frankly, right now, I feel like it could be. I I feel like it can reach the potential of being Game of the Year level or maybe even Game of All Time level, at least in the top 10, top 15-ish or so of me being alive and being a gamer for so long. It has the potential of achieving that accolade. But I'm just going to have to put Elden Ring on hold until I'm ready to own my own copy, which right now, of course, it's a little tumultuous, being that I'm a bit kind of sort of broke. Um, And off my console of choice. It doesn't necessarily have to be Xbox from what I'm hearing. People are saying that it runs at a buttery smooth 60 FPS now with some patches on PS5. And also there's the concept, the overall idea that I can play on the go if I was to buy it on Steam. Because then I'll be able to play on Steam Deck. And then when I get home, I can play on my souped up rig on the major tower and play at the highest rating uh, 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 settings. And then being able to pull up that save file from a Steam Deck via the Steam library, boom. So I have options, but it's just going to have to take a backseat for now. But that there was enough material and enough great things happening in those seven hours that I did manage to sink in to at least give Elden Ring an honorable mention. Because objectively, not subjectively, but objectively it is in fact a great game. So since we're talking about great games, let's talk about the number one, if you couldn't already guess, and since it didn't manage to be Elden Ring, since I managed to get that in the honorable mentions, of course it is boy. Oh no, I'm sorry. No. Atreus. God of War Ragnarok. By default, it's got to be my number one. And on this podcast whether it be through the YouTube channel or your podcast platform of choice. I actually have a whole dedicated review for the game, so I'm not going to really spend too much on this because there are more details to be found in that separate 40-minute segment. But God of War Ragnarok, similar to what I mentioned about my number two game, which was Plague Tale Requiem, it was the only other game that had those emotional tugs that made me you know, kind of just sink into my chair while the credits were rolling, especially after getting the true ending, not just the actual definitive ending, but that secondary ending where a character says, hey, you should probably go and take care of this other thing. And you witness that final end credit scene or ending scene before proper scrolling credits begin. And we have a uh, Hosier, you know, uh, giving us his ballad. And while I'm listening to him and having the credits roll, I sink into my seat and go, it, yeah, I just absorb it and just kind of think to myself, yeah, like that that just happened. That just happened. And that to me is always kind of like the litmus test for what could be considered my personal game of the year. Now, I will kind of add this anecdote that even though this is my game of the year 2022, do I prefer this over 2018? Actually, no, I prefer the 2018 for other reasons that some other people have even touched upon, and I'm pretty surprised to learn that I'm not the only one, is because 2018 had that much more streamlined, more cohesive, and straightforward path of having our characters go from point A to point B for a single goal, and having to deal with those objectives, or I'm sorry, those obstacles to meet that goal, which is to spread the ashes uh, on the highest peak of the realms, because it felt more personal to Kratos and to Atreus. and it was through those struggles that they learned to bond with each other. This game did that thing where even though on a technical scale it's doing everything better from gameplay to graphics to scope to detail to boss fights. And yet, when it boils down to preference, I prefer the 2018 intimacy versus the large-scale, oh, it's end of the world, it's the end of the world type factor from Ragnarok. You know, once we go into Ragnarok levels of stakes because it's the end of the world doesn't feel as personal and this might not resonate with everybody but for me I like the more personal stuff so we really are dealing with like a game that's a 10 out of 10 versus a game that's a 9 out of 10 it's it's neck and neck it's not like one is just "Eh, it's kind of whatever but the other one no no they're both like it's it's going back to the analogy that I used in that review the godfather analogy where both are seminal mastercraft movies but personally I actually am in the minority that prefers the first godfather over part 2 despite part 2 being the one that a lot of people say is one of the greatest sequels of all time I actually like how much more straightforward godfather part 1 is and just alike I prefer how much more streamlined and more direct uh, god of war 2018 was versus the craziness and the um just, uh, just I don't want to say over-the-topness, but the just, just the sheer l- d- doubling of scale and scope that Ragnarok was. And plus, I will give a little bit of credence to some people's complaints or, or nitpicks that the ending did feel a little rushed. When I was playing the game, I didn't really feel it because, like I said, a lot of shit was happening dramatically, but now, looking back in hindsight... There are moments where I'm like, yeah, that felt a little rushed. A character makes a sudden turn in motivation. And I feel like maybe they were crunching to meet the November release date. And maybe that's one of the sacrifices they had to make. And plus, there's some lines of dialogue here and there that feel a little, I don't want to say sequel-baity, but DLC-baity. Though I do have my own personal little wish list to think about when it comes to DLC. There's one in particular that I would love to see because... One major character takes a turn as far as character development that I was like, yo, I was not expecting this. And if they want to explore this a little deeper, that's who you call on for the DLC. Uh, Because I have my own personal theories. Outside of that, though, I can gush on and on. And because of these theories and these things that I'm able to really constantly still think about, even over a month after being the game, that's probably worthy of being called my game of the year. And that, of course, goes to God of War Ragnarok. 2022 was actually a pretty, pretty decent, ga- uh, decent year for gaming, if I do say so myself. But it looks like 2023 is going to be a delectable shoving, possibly even fisting, because <laughs> we're not—we don't even have some stuff that's confirmed for the back half of the 20- 2023, but. They're already dropping hints that in the fall of 2023, we're going to see Marvel's Spider-Man 2. And then the first half, what do we got? We got the Dead Space remake. We got Hogwarts Legacy. We got uh, uh, Dead Island 2. We got Resident Evil 4 remake. We got, uh, god damn, we got just so much. Street Fighter 6, Tekken 8. uh, Oh my god, there's just so much going on. Wolong, a lot of stuff, other stuff, Atomic Heart. We're not even counting the uh, Game Pass stuff. I already got a list boiling down the 2023 releases to look forward to. Unfortunately, Forspoken is not one of them because I played the demo, and so far it's kind of a no for me, dog. (laughs) But we'll see as time goes on because there's plenty of stuff to keep on my radar, and if I do manage to play any of that stuff close to release, then I will definitely be recording another episode for the Dark Spider cast that will keep on trucking on 2023, but a lot of cool stuff to look forward to, and if I come up with any other topics that I want to talk about it in podcast form that don't make for the niche channel, for the Th- Spider-Man and Batman channel, then I will turn to the mic and speak to you guys. In the meantime, though, if you guys enjoyed my ranking here, hit the like button if you're watching this on YouTube or listening to it on YouTube. If you're listening on your podcast platform of choice, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, Anchor.fm, Whatever system they have at play, make sure to show your support for the podcast by either either hitting thumbs up or rating it, commenting in the comment section what your guys' top 5 games of 2022 were. What were your bottom 5? I feel like I didn't really play enough bad games for to come up with a bad uh, 5 of 2022 ranking, but uh, I could probably think of a couple that I, I just had to... I just had to drop Rainbow Six Extraction. Anybody? Possibly? Yeah, I'll probably throw that one in there. I didn't even finish it. I was like, screw this. Anyways, guys, that about does it for me. Hope you guys enjoyed this ranking. Hope you guys had a great 2022 in gaming, in movies, whatever it is that you guys enjoyed. And I'll see you next year or this year because chances are this is already going up on the beginning of 2023. Either way, stay humble, and I'll talk to you later.